Father, today we gather to shout the hymn of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I pray that our hearts would turn towards that day. That we really would be able to know and trust and feel and experience deep within a confident assurance that there will be a day where we will be with you. You will wipe every tear from our eyes. Help us to know and breathe and experience the day deep within that there is hope for a suffering world. And you've commissioned your church to go and to proclaim that hope for those that so desperately need to hear it. So lead us, God. Open up your word now to us in spirit and in truth as we declare together once again, holy, holy is the Lord. Amen and amen. And what a beautiful song uh, to remind us again of just the promise of that day. And uh, it really does capture the spirit uh, of Missions Month, right? The, the opportunity to bring that sort of hope uh, of that future glory, which will be a major focus of what we talk about uh, this morning on our last day of Missions Month. It is. It's the last Sunday of Missions Month. I hope you all have enjoyed uh, our, our emphasis that we uh, try to do every year and that we set aside here through the course of November. Um, we've had an opportunity to really highlight a lot of great things about our church and the way that we seek to live out this great commission. Uh, I hope you've been encouraged and inspired. Uh, you think about some of the things that we've heard from the Whitleys and the Cooks and then today from Brian's and the work in Cambodia is just a reminder of all the different touch points that we have across the world, truly internationally. Uh, but we've also tried to highlight other opportunities that we have as a church to engage in these missional opportunities. Uh, you think about the, the team that's going to be going through the college ministry to Portland here in a few weeks. Hope you're praying for them. Uh, they'll be heading out uh, at the end of December, middle of December, I guess you could say. And then you get to the next part of 2023, we're going to have a team going to Lesotho uh, in the first part of January or mid to late part of January. Uh, we've got teams going to Guatemala later this summer. We're going to have a junior high team, a high school team that's heading out this year. So a lot of great ways for us to engage uh, missionally beyond our city, beyond our immediate context. And we tried to accentuate a lot of those opportunities for you throughout the course of Missions Month. But we've also referenced a lot of things happening within our city, within our community, uh, that we want to be focused on as well. You think about uh, the, the numerous opportunities to engage, uh, like we talked about with Seminary Hills Park and the toy drive. Uh, we, we have such a strong partnership with them, and we want to continue to invest in them and those students to try to make a difference in their lives. I, I do hope you grab an ornament from those trees there in Harris Hall or in the preschool suite to, to come back with a gift at some point before December 7th to bless them. That's just one of many things we do to try to partner with that school. Uh, you think about our food distribution efforts. We, we've talked at, at length about the different teams that are working on a weekly basis to uh, deliver food to folks that are hungry and that are in need and, and to build those relationships. Uh, we talked about what it means to advocate for foster care and adoption last week and, and the, the call and the goal for us as a church to provide more families, to really speak into that. We, we want to see three families within the next year commit to being a foster family or an adoptive family and, and for us to actually build out a network of support around those families and, and all the different ways that we can participate collectively as a church community in that effort. So 
I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been inspired. Um, there, there are so many wonderful things that our church is trying to do to live out this call towards missions. I also referenced at one point earlier this week that one of the ways that we, we seek to mobilize is through the World Mission Offering. Uh, if, if you are just inspired by all of it, and you're like, man, I just want to try to bless all those different efforts, then uh, a gift to the World Mission Offering is a great way to do it. Uh, it's a separate offering. It's, it's independent from our church's budget. But it's, it's allocated to all these different efforts, internationally, locally, and a few others that allows us to, to continue to pursue these things in a very thoughtful and meaningful way. So uh, a, a hope that all of that encourages you and inspires you um, and strengthens you during this time. And it also provides us an opportunity for us to really maintain focus on why we do this. And, and the book of Romans, I think, has been a great guide for this emphasis in missions. Uh, you think about our theme for the year and this, this emphasis on renewal, and uh, what we've talked about is different ways in which we can kind of demonstrate that renewed life. After you fix your eyes on Jesus, it's going to change you. And as we've walked through that throughout the year, Romans 8 uh, ended up being kind of our guide for this month in, in this theme of missions, which I think is more than appropriate because Romans 8 talks about what does it mean to live the Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life. And, and that's really what we've been discussing for the last several weeks is, is how do we do that? How do we follow the Spirit's leading? And you can tell that more often than not, when God's Spirit indwells in the lives of his people, it compels them to go. It compels them to, to serve and to love. It is the heartbeat of missions. Uh, and so Romans 8 will continue to be our guide as we draw it to a close today. And so go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to kind of continue uh, this discussion today. And, and figure out a little bit more of what this looks like as we draw our focus on missions to a little bit of a close. And, and really what you will see is that as we've walked through the first part of chapter 8, you've seen this progression on the spirit-filled, spirit-led life, that it's marked by freedom. Uh, we've talked about how it's marked by obligation. And then last week we talked about the spirit of adoption that Paul refers to there in Romans chapter 8. Now, what's interesting is, is that before he gets to the next ministry of the Spirit, which actually is specifically referenced in verses 26 and 27, we're not going to be looking at that today. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. The next ministry of the Spirit that he references in 26 and 27 is what we'll talk about next week. Uh, it's actually how we'll start our, our journey into Advent. And what you'll see there is that Paul talks about how the Spirit helps us in our weakness which I think is a great way to start Advent. Uh, if you think about uh, essentially God sending Jesus to help us in our weakness, it'll be a great way for us to shift our focus towards the Advent season. Uh, and so really what we have here today then, before we get to that next ministry of the Spirit, is a bit of a digression, uh, which Paul is known for, right? He says something, he references something, then it takes him kind of on a bunny trail, and that's exactly what he's doing here in verses 18 through 25. We have a digression uh, where he begins to really uh, talk about in, in greater detail the differences in the, the contrast between suffering and glory. And you can, you can understand why he makes that digression, because as we ended last week, when we talked about the spirit of adoption that, that, that uh, God gives us, that that leads us to be known as children of God, uh, which essentially means that we become heirs, uh, with co-heirs with Christ, if, if what? If we share in his sufferings. Right? If you share in his sufferings, then you also share in his glory. And once Paul brings that up, it leads him into a greater conversation again between suffering and glory. And so we're going to take a look at it, verses 18 through 25, together this morning. Follow along with me and see how Paul uh, explains this in greater detail. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be, re will be revealed in us. 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Okay, uh, several things that I want to reference here uh, about this passage as Paul takes us in this digression in, in this comparison between suffering and glory. Uh, one of the things that I want to acknowledge as we begin the conversation today is that we've talked extensively about suffering at the end of October. And any time you bring up the subject of suffering, you have typically that question that comes to your mind, which is how does God, a good God, allow suffering? And, and that was the question we tried to tackle head on at the end of October. And so uh, that's not going to be our focus today. We're not going to go back into uh, that sort of dialogue and that sort of discussion, though I recognize it is an important question. And so if it's something you want to revisit, we go back and find that sermon at the end of October. What really is Paul's focus here is not so much just on understanding suffering, but really to uh, turn our hearts and our minds towards glory, right? The, the future glory that is going to be revealed. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But that opening statement in verse 18 is pretty important. For he says, as this transition to, to make this comparison, he says, for I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed within us. That is an incredible statement, right? It, it is such a, a encouraging and important thing for us to grasp. He is saying our present suffering doesn't compare to the glory that will be revealed. Now, a lot of times, I think we struggle with that. I think a lot of times, we don't always feel that. And that's exactly what I hope today's message helps accomplish and stir within each and every one of us, is that we can actually see and live into this reality where we understand that God's future glory that is prepared for us far outweighs our present suffering. And so one of the things that I want us to think of, here is the question that I want us to consider this morning, right? This is the, the main focus of the message is where is your focus? Like, what is your focus in life? And how does it shape your life? Because it really kind of boils down to one of two choices. You're either focused on what is or what will be. Like, that's it. Like, you're either focused on your present circumstances and the inevitable suffering that is going to accompany them, or you're focused on future glory. Which one of those things is dictating and orchestrating your life. And what Paul wants us to see and what we're going to wrestle with today is how do we shift our eyes off of the present suffering and onto the future glory that will be revealed. The question for every heart that's here this morning is, where's your focus? What is shaping your life? Right now, he, he begins to take us on a really interesting journey because I think what's so compelling about this particular section and why we want to think a little bit more int intently on the future glory that's been revealed is because Paul begins to reveal what is somewhat of a mystery 
right? That there is an important way for us to understand how creation is a part of this future glory. And that's where he turns his attention, saying that even creation itself is eagerly awaiting this moment where we will be revealed as God's children, right? Which is what he was just talking about, what we talked about last week. The creation itself is longing for this day. And the reason creation is longing for this day is because it has been subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. Now, this is, this is fairly interesting because essentially what Paul is teaching and reminding us here is that creation itself, uh, not by its own choosing, has been subjected to frustration because of sin. Right? So if you think about the, the natural logic and the natural progression of what we see in Genesis and the fall of humanity, right, that essentially God creates everything to be good, right? every moment of creation is labeled as good. The moon, the stars, the, the trees, the vegetation, the birds of the air, the beasts of the land, like every single moment is good. Then he gets to humanity and it is really good. Right? Everything is good. But then in our sinful rebellion, right, there is a curse. And so what happens as a result is that when God creates everything as good and he turns to humanity and he says, this is all yours. Rule over it. Subdue it. Right? Fill the earth. He entrusts this good creation to mankind. But then mankind in their sinful rebellion is cursed. And so in their fallen state, They are no longer worthy to rule over a good and perfect creation. And so the natural consequence, because the two were created with this intimate relationship for one to rule over and inhabit the other, creation itself, not by its choice, but because of mankind's sin and because of God's curse that he puts against it, is now also subject to frustration. Another way to think of it, right? A fallen humanity has to inhabit a fallen world. And when we inhabit a fallen world, it reminds us of this tension in the separation we have with the creator. And so we live in a world that is out of sorts, do we not? And we see it. We experience it. We can tell that this world is subjected to frustration. It's described later that it, that it is going to be liberated from bondage to decay, Right, We can see that decay. We can see that bondage. We can see this frustration in the world in which we inhabit. For every moment that we marvel at the beauty of this world, right, which, which we do a lot. I mean, think of those moments where you've just been in awe of a sunset or a sunrise. Literally today as I was driving to church, I was driving through the neighborhood and I saw these four just gorgeous red trees. I, I like literally stopped and took a picture because I thought they were so amazing. Like we, we have these moments where we're in creation and it just takes our breath away. But for every moment that we have that takes our breath away, we have other moments that are terrifying, right? That, that are just chilling because of the sheer um, random, randomness of natural disasters that just wreak havoc all around us, right? You, we, we hear news of tsunamis that kill hundreds and thousands of people or hurricanes and all these different things that demonstrate this world, this creation is out of sorts, right? And so what Paul is saying is that all of that is a demonstration of creation longing to be set free. Now that has very significant theological implications. And and I hope we recognize those this morning. I, I want to make sure that we can connect the dots here because here's what happens a lot of times 
with our faith. A lot of times, uh, we will be influenced on very important theological matters because of maybe a cultural or historical point of view. Uh, for example, uh, let, let me give you an example that relates to this particular passage. We, we as Westerners, uh, trace a tremendous amount of our lineage to Greco-Roman thought, right? Ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Our understanding of philosophy, of world, of governance, freedom, so much of it is tied to Greco-Roman thought. We, we understand this, right? So much of our Western identity and worldview traces its roots to that part of human history. And so throughout that part of human history, uh, philosophically, there were some thoughts that developed that essentially said there's a difference between the physical world and the spiritual world. There's this dualism. There's a physical world and there's a spiritual world. There's a body and there's a soul. And the two are different, right? The two are separate. And we have this natural understanding of the separateness between physical and spiritual, which has largely influenced many people's understanding of heaven, Right, that, that as a result, many of us begin to think that essentially heaven is the soul just leaving the body. And, and that heaven is, is some mysterious place that nobody can identify or point to because it's of the spiritual realm. That one day this world will just pass away. And, and that's how we see it. And the only problem with that is that it has nothing to do with Scripture. And everything to do with kind of a historical Western mindset. Because what the scripture teaches is not that this world will be something we escape. This world is something to be redeemed. Creation will be restored. Right? Like, like imagine this world set free from that bondage and decay. Think of the beauty that awaits that restoration. Revelation teaches very clearly, new heaven, new earth. The physical world matters, right? They are not just distinctively separate. They are woven together, and there is going to be a liberation of this physical world. Creation itself will be redeemed, and creation longs for that liberation. That is very important for us to understand. What, what will heaven look like? What will it be like? Well, it's going to be a redeemed and restored creation as God intended. Only it's not going to be, you know, some ancient garden. It's going to be the new city. Right? And that's what Paul is beginning to, to draw, uh, draw us to, right? The, the uh, future glory that's going to be revealed even in creation. Now, he connects this to our role within this creation as he moves forward into the next paragraph. Now, his transition statement uh, uses a slightly different image to convey this point as he then begins to talk about pain and childbearing, right? Just as in groans and in childbearing, so creation is longing for this day to be revealed. That again makes sense, right? Because having a baby is painful, so I've been told. And, and, and when you think about that pain, that labor, right, it leads to glory, right? So, so the pain and the suffering is worth it for the glory that that happens on the other side of everything, right? And so, so Paul's using that same idea. Yes, the, the present suffering is difficult, but there is a future glory that is going to wait. Now he wants to make that same point for humanity, but using a slightly different image. Here he then shifts his focus to humanity and he uses the terminology first fruits. Okay, now first fruits is kind of a confusing term, but he's drawing from a practice of ancient Israel. Okay, uh, the practice in ancient Israel was that whenever you took your first fruit, first, first grain, 
first crop, first fruit of the harvest, you would bring it to the altar, you'd bring it to the temple as a sacrifice to the Lord. You, you would bring him your first fruits. And you would do this for two primary reasons, right? The, the first was to demonstrate to God, right, that he has everything. Everything belongs to him. He gets our first, not our leftovers, not our afterthoughts, not, not, not when we're fulfilled. He gets it all because it all belongs to him. Right, so the act of bringing your first crop, your first fruit to the altar uh, and, and sacrifice was truly a, an act of worship. It was a posture to say, you get everything. Right, but it was also a statement. It was also a statement of faith saying that we trust or that God's people would trust a more bountiful harvest was on the way. Right, that this was just the beginning. And I trust that God is going to bring about the harvest. Now this makes sense. Think about, again about like the wandering through the wilderness and, and the wandering in the desert and, and the manna and how many times God said, I don't want you collecting for yourself more than just what you need for that day. Everything that God often tries to provide is a statement that says, you can trust me for tomorrow. You can trust that more is coming. You can trust that a harvest is on the way. So when you think about bringing your first fruits, it's also a statement of saying, I trust there is a more bountiful harvest on the way. That's what first fruit means. So, so now Paul says, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. All right, so what does that mean? So essentially, the fruit of the Spirit, especially in this context in Romans chapter 8, we see what the, fruit, uh, what the Spirit is doing. It is creating freedom. It's creating obligation. It's creating this understanding of sonship, of, of being a child of God, of adoption. But you can look beyond just even Romans 8 and think about the fruits of the Spirit as a whole. right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? All these different things that the Spirit does. That we who receive this Spirit and all of its fruits and all of its benefits are to bring them back to God, right? The, the first thing that this is saying is that you take anything that the Spirit is providing to you and you give it back to God as an aspect of worship. So if he gives you freedom through the Spirit, if the Spirit of Christ, if the Spirit of God brings about freedom, that freedom is to be used for him, not for yourself. Right? You, you give it all to him. You bring these fruits, the, the things that the Spirit is doing within your life, this identity of being a child. If, if it brings about love in your life, you are to love for him. If it brings about joy in your life, you are to bring joy for him. Anything that the Spirit produces within us, we give back to God as a statement of worship that essentially says, everything that I am is yours. Use me. Use all of me. But it's also saying, and what I think it's mostly saying in this context, is when we bring the first fruits of the Spirit before God, we are demonstrating a trust that a more bountiful harvest is on the way. Does that make sense? So, so the freedom you experience in this life through the Spirit is but a glimpse of the freedom we receive when the glory is revealed. So the love that we experience in this life it's just a glimpse of the bountiful harvest of love that awaits when his glory is revealed. We receive the Spirit, and we know our salvation has begun, but it is not complete until full salvation has been revealed. And so everything we experience now through the Spirit is just a first fruit, demonstrating to us that a more bountiful harvest of glory is on the way. And so we can trust it. 
We give it to him and we trust that there is more coming. Now, in that, Paul makes a specific reference to what that bountiful harvest will be. A resurrection and redemption of the body. Right, so again, you can see how this pairs well with creation, that essentially what he's saying is that what you're longing for, that glory that is going to be revealed in you, those who have received the Spirit, is going to be a full redemption of the body. So again, this future glory is not your soul escaping your body and going to dwell in some mythical place in the clouds. What the gospel teaches is that this world and our bodies will be fully redeemed and restored. We are not longing for an escape from the world or escape from our bodies, but a redemption of both. That is where the Christian existence and belief finds hope. A full redemption, a full restoration. And that's what Paul is trying to accentuate for his people here. Right, that this is what it is all leading to. There is going to be a day where all this glory is revealed and everything is redeemed and restored. And so the question becomes for us, church, where's your focus? What are you really concerned with? Where are your thoughts? Where are your hearts? What's governing your life? Right, what directs your attention? Do we truly understand the significance of this hope? and the implications of it. That's what he's trying to awaken his readers to understand. That's what we need to be awakened to today. Do we understand the future glory that is on the horizon? Is it shaping our lives? See, this is what Paul begins to understand, right? Like what Paul begins to understand is that this is hope for a suffering world. And this is what takes us into the heartbeat of missions. Like this is what missions is essentially what it's all about at its core, right? That, that what Paul understands is that there is a greater plan, right? That he's not going to Rome, he's not going to Corinth, he's not going to Philippi for his own glory, to get his own attention, for his own ideas, just because of the own goodness of his heart. He, he understands there is a greater plan that has been unfolding since the beginning of time, and that plan is for the redemption of creation and of humanity. It is hope for a suffering world. And that is a message that should light a fire within our souls, church. That's why Paul goes. That's what compels him, is to go from one place to the next, village after village, town after town, and say, listen, there's hope for a suffering world. When we see that hope, it leads us into the world, not away from it. It is a message that we should shout from the rooftops. That's why we go, to bring hope to a suffering world. And that should be what orients our entire existence in our lives, because that is the one message that truly matters. And that's what Paul recognizes. And that's what Paul is giving himself to. And that's what we also should be spurred on by, is the, to have this opportunity, this, this opportunity to share this message of hope with a suffering world. So where's your focus? On your present sufferings or on future glory? See, this is what's so compelling about it in, in my mind is it, is it has this reference both to creation and to humanity that there are groans, right? Like creation is groaning to be set free. And, and the same thing happens within us, right? We groan inwardly as we wait 
for this to be revealed. Now, growing implies dissatisfaction with your current circumstances, does it not? Like, I mean, if you think about when you're groaning in life, like that, that discontentment in some ways, right? That there is something more that you want, something else that you're longing for. That's the commonality between creation and humanity. And that, to me, kind of helps us answer this question about what is our focus, like where we really have our hearts and our minds turned towards. Right? Because here's what I think happens, one of two things. Right? The greater peril that this passage is teaching is the heart that doesn't groan for the future glory. Right? Like the heart that, that doesn't care, that isn't longing for it. That's the greater risk. That's the greater peril. And we need to ask ourselves, well, what leads to that? Like, what are the, what are the factors that maybe um, silence our hearts to being so stirred by this message of hope? What is it that keeps us from groaning and longing for this hope that is to be revealed, this glory that is to be revealed? And I would offer at least two suggestions to us this morning. One is just, we grow so in love with this world and content with this world, we forget about the glory that is to come. Right, like we, we only live for this current reality. We, we live for this current life, right? So our focus, our energies, our attention, our hope for a better tomorrow has very little to do with the glory that's going to be revealed in just the experiences we hope for this life. Right, so we long for a better job, we long for a better family, we long for better circumstances, but all of it is revealing that ultimately the world that we're really fixated on is this one. And we grow so content with it that it, it really begins to receive the fullness of our attention and our focus. Right, like that's, that's what keeps us from, from living for the glory that's going to be revealed. We become far too comfortable in this world far too fixated on what this world can provide. That's one, right? It's contentment. The other reason that sometimes we fail to groan and long for this is because we eventually convince ourselves that the suffering is greater than the glory. And we just become far too discouraged, right? We, we go through so much pain, we go through so much difficulty, we go through so many hardships that we convince ourselves that our present sufferings are really the only thing that matter. And, and it begins to consume us and it creates a life of despair rather than a life of hope. And so I wonder this morning, like, what is it that potentially contributes to anything in your life that has maybe shifted your focus off of the glory that is going to be revealed? Right, are you just walking around with this mindset that is just so consumed by present suffering that you think it is far greater than the glory that awaits? Are, are we, have we lost just how incredible it's gonna be that our whole time, attention, and efforts are just driven by fleeting and, and futile things that will pass away? Like, what are we giving our lives to? What's our focus? What are we, what are we longing for? Do we understand the future glory that awaits, the hope that is offered to a suffering world? And are we bringing that voice to the world that so desperately needs to hear it? Are we bringing that voice of hope to our own souls? What's your focus? What's directing and shaping your life? 
Here's how I'll conclude this morning when I think about the question that this passage presents. Is that really um, what, what I think is so powerful is this, this word that is, again, associated both with creation and with humanity. Right? That, that, that creation eagerly awaits. Right? That, that humanity, as we groan inwardly, we also eagerly await for this moment to be revealed. That, that sense of eagerness, if you look at the literal translation of it, it means to lean forward with interest and passion. Right? Like that's, that's how we should be living our lives when we think about the glory that is going to be revealed through Christ. That, that's what we should be thinking about when we long for the restoration of this earth and the restoration of our souls, right? We should be looking forward to it with this intense interest and passion. We should eagerly desire these things. Give your life to it. Have this be what, what determines your, your heart, your, your focus, your passion, your joy, your relationships. We look forward to these things with eagerness. And too often I feel as if we respond to it with passivity with forgetfulness, right? Like it's, it's something that will happen one day and what Paul is saying, no, lean into it with greater interest and passion. This is what life is all about. Christian hope is a confident hope. It is a courageous hope. It is a hope that can endure all things. It is a hope that deserves to be declared from the rooftops. It's the hope that we build our lives upon. And so Paul brings that to light. He brings that eagerness and he says, so wait for it patiently. Another way to translate that is with patient endurance. <laughs> don't grow impatient. Don't grow dissatisfied. Don't grow content. Don't grow discouraged. Endure. Wait and endure. Know that the first fruits of what has been unleashed within you with the Spirit of God is bringing about a more bountiful harvest, a future glory that demands everything that we are. Now I recognize it's easy for us to forget this future glory, to lose sight of it, right? I mean, it's, it's so easy just to fall into the rhythms of life and to think about Monday and Tuesday, to, to think about our current burdens and problems. They're just right here. Right, and it's hard to get the vision for what lies beyond it. And so what do we do? How do we maintain it? Well, I think there's a couple of things I would offer as a word of suggestion for us this morning. The first is to um, come together week after week and sing about it. Sing to together that there will be a day when all will bow before him. Sing the hymn of heaven. Like understand the holiness of our God. Give yourself to it. Evaluate what's in your life. What, what, what's your time going towards? What are your thoughts going towards? Where are your worries? Where are your fears? Redirect them. Look around you, church. Look at these nations. Think about the suffering that exists in this world, in our community. And recognize that we've been given a message of hope for a suffering world. And we've been commissioned to go and declare it from the rooftops that God has a plan. There is hope in the midst of suffering. How often are you giving yourself to declaring that message? 
The more you give yourself to declaring that message, the more that message will speak to you. The more it will keep you centered and the more it will keep you focused, the more it will keep you grounded in what really matters. This is the heart of missions. It's what compels us to go. And then through it all, whether it's when you gather together week after week to sing the prayer, to read scripture, or maybe it's when we're going and we're serving and we're bringing toys to kids or we're going to Cambodia or whatever it is that God has prompted us to do. May we take these moments, these intentional moments to realize that as the Spirit fills our life and he leads us to go do these things, those moments of freedom, those moments of love and joy are just a glimpse of a more bountiful harvest that is on the way. And let us once again remind ourselves of the promise of glory for a redeemed and restored world and body. And I mean, that, that to me is the hope of it. You, go back and read 1 Corinthians 15 this week. Go back and read Revelation. Remind yourself of this hope. What it tells us is that the body that is sown in weakness, that is laid to rest in dishonor. So as, as you experience that weakness, as you experience that dishonor that Paul speaks of for the body, you get older in age and you lose some of your abilities, you lose some of your strength, you, you fall victim to an illness or a disease, or you see it claim the life of a loved one. And you think about being laid to rest in weakness and dishonor. Remember that the gospel says the body that is laid to rest in weakness will be raised in power. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. That what Paul teaches and what this gospel compels us to understand is that while not all of us will fall asleep, we will all be changed. That that which is mortal will be clothed with immortality. That which is perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. And on that day, the saying will become true that death has been swallowed up in victory and the victory belongs to Jesus Christ. Amen? And remember that in that newfound glory, that redeemed body, you will not walk around in some ancient garden, but a new city, the new Jerusalem, and in that city, God will make his dwelling with his people, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Think about that, church. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more pain. No more death. Every tear wiped away, church. And in this city, he will bring in the nations, every tongue, every tribe, every language, and he will bring in the nations and they will experience healing from the leaves of the tree of life. And we will gather together as a great multitude and we will worship. We will sing praises to him saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The Lord God Almighty reigns. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he will reign forever. That's the hope for a suffering world. That's the hope for each and every one of us, church. So when the Spirit of God fills you, you come before your God and you say, you get all of me. And I trust and know that whatever goodness I feel by this Spirit within me, 
is just a glimpse of this bountiful harvest that is to come. So lead me, God. Lead me. Let my focus be on you. That's the challenge today, church, that we can come together and declare, yes, God, lead me. Whatever I face, wherever I may be, let it be your hand that guides me. If I face the deepest gloom and these troubled seas, may I be reminded that my present sufferings do not far outweigh the glory that will be revealed. Let me put my hand in yours and every step of the way know that when my task on this earth is done and that future glory is finally revealed, I will be able to say with confidence that my God was the one who leadeth. Let him lead you, church. Let him lead you to the glory that awaits. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And that's exactly our prayer. Help our focus to be on you and you alone. God, help us to look beyond any present suffering and any current difficulty and fix our hearts on future glory. And may we fix our hearts and our minds so, so passionately focused on such things, God, that it helps us to navigate our every day. That we would wake up each morning and each moment that you give us breath, that you give us life, that you give us health, that we would come before you and say, you get all of me. You get all of us as a church, as a community of faith. And we declare, God, lead us by your spirit and by your truth. And may we know, God, each and every step, no matter how difficult it may be, it is not pointless, it is not aimless, but you are leading us into glory. And for that, God, we are grateful and we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.